Hello, Blenders, and welcome, welcome to episode number 84 of Real Blend, a podcast that looks amazing this week because it features Oscar winner Roger Deakins. Hello, oh. everyone. Yes, Roger Deakins is on our podcast. Yeah, you and can't we, tell, but our podcast looks brilliant. Oh, the like, lighting I mean, look, here. Look at the, yeah, look at the cinematography. Look at the uh, grain. Look at that. Look at that. Look at the depth of field. In that Why shot. am I just a silhouette? Yeah. <laughs> like Sean is like full Citizen Kane, like four depths of field back. It's like what, it's amazing. What are the Coen brothers doing here? I don't know. I just saw Andrew Dominic doing a sequel to Jesse James in the corner. I was like very confused to what's going on. Why here. am I just a silhouette? <laughs> <laughs> Take the hint, Jake. Uh, my name is Sean O'Connell. Obviously, I'm the managing director here at Cinema Blend. I am joined, as always, uh, in my real blendedness by Jake Hamilton of Fox 32 in Chicago, who is, as he's reminded everybody, a silhouette today. Hello, Jake. How are you? Can we talk about just how much people hated me introducing the episode last week. It stirred the pot. Viciously. And I mean, I don't think I did that bad of a job. It's right, basically right. saying, hello, Blenders. It's freaking real blend. Right. But apparently I did it so poorly well, that I, that people felt the need to let me know to do the, how the badly point, I introduced the show. Where I, wa- I really wanted Kevin to do it this week. And Kevin, mm. I think you should do it soon. Just to uh, see I'll, what it sounds like. I'll, I'll do, do it. I can tell you how much you suck. <laughs> well, those that wasn't everybody. Those were all Sean's mom. Like it she was, was like re- super like like my mom heard that and she's like she called Sean's mom and had that orchestrated. So you know, yeah. I'm sorry, my, man. My mom actually called. She said, she said, you allowed this. You allowed this. <laughs> said I have to make them feel like they're included. Uh, the other person who I'm including, obviously, is Kevin McCarthy of Fox Five in Washington D.C. and. Uh, the only man on this podcast who said uh, who could say he got to hang out with Brad Pitt today. Uh, Brad? well, uh, today that is half I said true. Today, today would be yes. Today, today yeah. would be. Yes. <laughs> I said today specifically yeah. to not include Jake. <laughs> <laughs> Why am I a silhouette? <laughs> what is going on here? We will tell that story in a minute. Um, topics for this week: we are going to be discussing. Ad Astra, which uh, the two guys have seen and I have not. So I'm going to make sure that they do not get into spoilers. And each of them had the opportunity to interview Brad Pitt in Washington, D.C. We're going to discuss uh, Robert Downey Jr. possibly coming back to the MCU. And as mentioned at the top of the show, Roger Deakins, the Roger Deakins. Can I say something real quick? Um, First of all, I want to say thank you to anybody who listens to our show because this is the type of show I always dreamed of being a part of. And I say that because when I first started off in radio, I would have cinematographers and composers on my show, but those aren't like, those aren't, you know, massively teasable names to a general audience, you know, outside of a, a, our niche audience and people who love filmmaking, which is a large group of people. It's like, it's amazing to have an outlet now that we can talk to these people. Like, you know, this Roger Deakins interview, will, and Sean will get into more detail about it because he's the one who conducted it. But I, the idea that we can go to a studio and say, we want to talk filmmaking craft with so-and-so, uh, and they are giving us these people. I mean, we've had everybody, if you're listening to our show for the first time, we've had everybody from Tarantino to Alfonso Cuaron to Russo Brothers. A lot of filmmakers have been on this show. Danny Elfman, composer. Yep. Um, Deakins is a dream guest. Um, it's also not a guest that Jake or myself would ever probably get on a TV circuit interview. Um, And oddly enough, that's a name. It's funny. When we got the invite for Goldfinch, 
Deacons' name was listed, and we both immediately replied, uh, uh, trying to get him, uh, and we couldn't because uh, you know it's not really a TV. Oddly enough, ironically, considering he's such a visual guy, it's not really a TV interview. Um, so I just want to say thank you to our listeners because we are getting these guests because you listen to our show yep. enough that studios are now recognizing it, um, and so this is the show that I always dreamed of being a part of. So thank you. To this point where we can tease, we're going to tease right now. <clears throat> We've booked somebody uh, that we're super excited about. <laughs> and uh, two people, two people that we're, uh, that we're really, really excited about. And that's as far as I can go because we're all pretty suspicious um, yeah. on this show. And we don't like to say things that haven't happened. Um but we have some 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 something really really big coming up. And we'll just leave it yeah. at that, right? That's far enough. That's far I enough. Told yeah, everyone I know. Yeah, I, I, I'm and Jake and Sean can attest this. I'm so superstitious. I, yeah, like I don't believe it's happening, or I'm worried if I say it. It'll it'll not happen, and well, it's just something I've always been. You know, you, like, I know you're not a sports fan, but I feel like you would be miserable to watch yeah, sports with. I'm not a big I'm not a big sports guy, but I mean, this interview that Sean is referring to, if yeah. it happens, yeah. um, it's it going is, to happen. Is, it's pretty much going to happen. But oh. if it if if it does actually happen, I I am it, we are so freaking excited about. Well, it. And, and, but 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 yeah. I want to just build on this before we move on, and I promise we're moving on. Um, Kevin's right in that. The, the invitation that we got, the opportunity that we're being given is being given to us for the podcast. Like that's that's the point that we're trying to emphasize is it's that huge because you guys are listening to us and because you're responding in the way that you're responding. Um, the studios are understanding that this is a platform that they want our their people to come to to talk long form about film. And we're being yeah. told this. And it's it's leading to opportunities, and we hope this is the tip of the iceberg. And this is not at all at all us patting ourselves in the back. I mean, I'm just we're just talking about it from a general perspective that we are grateful to have a platform yeah. where we can actually break down film craft in a longer format. Because a lot of us do these interviews in four minutes on these junket circuits, and a lot of the things that we ask in these technical interviews are not really great for, you know, like morning television. Even They're interesting to us. But so I'm just I, I am just so blown away that we have an outlet that allows us to actually we just geeked out with someone for 20 minutes who is another guest we'll have on eventually uh, <laughs> about a movie that came out 30 something years ago. Well, because uh, maybe it won't happen. retroactively. Yeah. <laughs> well, that one already happened. But it, 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 there's such a calming effect the time we get with these guests too. We're talking yep. 20, 30 minutes and it's, it's a world of difference yep. world. So you thank you to everybody who listens and makes the show possible. Kevin is so right. We're not saying that to pat ourselves on the back, but we are going to read this review now to pat ourselves <laughs> on the back. <laughs> uh, this review comes from uh, the man 288 um, who says subject line. I love this podcast. Now, again, a reminder to anybody, if you're relatively new to the show, uh, at the top of the show, we like to read reviews, um, negative and positive. And you can go over to the iTunes page and leave us a review. You can email us at realblend at cinemablend.com. We love hearing from you guys. And we like to read these at the top of the show. Again, the man 288 says, I've heard Time and time again, the podcasts are one of the best ways to calm down and get rid of stress. Being the film nut that I am naturally, I decided to look for a movie podcast. 
After cycling through multiple film podcasts that I really couldn't get into, I found the perfect one. The three gentlemen running this podcast are so passionate about movies that you can feel their friendship, whether they're geeking out over Tarantino or they're arguing over whether Kill Bill is one or two movies. Almost every single time I listen, I always find someone that I agree with, which is almost always Jake, except for the movie, except for the movie Us, they say. Uh, I always find myself laughing at the inside jokes and finding new perspectives on different movies, especially Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It was only after listening to this podcast that I began to love that film. The blend games are so entertaining and the interviews are eye-opening. I wish more podcasts were as genuine as this one. Thank you for being, thank you for everything that you do. A couple more things. Hashtag release the Tarantino audio. (laughs) From before the interview, that's a really good, that's a deep And for people who might not know what that is, (laughs) we had a great moment with Quentin Tarantino prior to the recording start, or we had the recording going because Gabe had it set up prior to him walking in, but we we chose what to keep in and what to keep out because that part wasn't part of the interview. Right. Um, But it was special. Like, it was a really special moment. So maybe eventually... Uh, we'll find a way to release that, but yeah. um, and I think we've discussed it at least. It, it's 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 definitely him talking about listening to our show, which was absolutely surreal. He listened to an episode we did about best <laughs> movies of 2019 so far, and he was quoting literally word for word. <laughs> yes. Parts of our podcast. Quentin Tarantino. Uh, They go on to say, I don't know if this has been done because I only started a month or two ago, but you should do Trailer Blend, the movie with the best best trailer, and I will let you know. We did do that uh, back in April. Uh, Gabe I, says I, it's I April. did face off. I did face off for that. Oh, the teaser for face off. What I did, you, did. did you do Spider Man? Uh, no, I think I did Spider Man. The with two the World Towers. Trade Center. I yeah, did World uh, Trade Center. Uh, the teaser for Force Awakens. Oh yeah, when when Boyega pops up from the from the frame. Yeah, yeah. And, and I have no idea what I did. I barely remember what I did for seventies blend. Um, oh, by the way, we're doing eighties blend sometime soon, like within the next week or two. Uh, and poster blend, the movie with the best poster. That would be a really good one too. Uh, Dunkirk is amazing, Kevin, but not Nolan's best movie, in my opinion. That goes to Inception I, for me. I agree. It's not, as, it's not his best movie. I love Dunkirk. It's, it's just a bit we you do at the end of the Interstellar, show. Right? Interstellar, right? Interstellar? Well, it's not even an opinion. It's just a fact. It's, it's a fact. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay, last Literally thing. the definition of an opinion. I really <laughs> want to hear your thoughts on the ending of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood because I don't think I've heard anyone discuss that but I could be wrong. Thanks again for everything. This podcast is fantastic. Well, we don't have the time to discuss that uh, this week, so you're going to have to wait. But yes, Kevin, yes. I have a very, very quick question, and I promise I'll move on. This is something that I wanted to ask Brad Pitt. I didn't ask it because I didn't, I didn't want to waste time because I wasn't sure he'd give me the answer. It's probably similar to the question that anybody asks Quentin Tarantino, what's in the briefcase, whatever. I want to ask your opinions real quick. Do you think, I'll give you my opinion after I ask the question, do you think that Brad Pitt's character actually kills his wife in that in that flashback? Here's my I say no only because I root for that character and I don't think that Cliff Booth would actually be a murderer and then just walking around as as cool and nice as he is. The other side of that coin though is You don't think or you don't want. I I think what I, I'm hearing is I like that wants. character and I don't want to yeah. like someone that murdered their wife. So Quentin Quentin probably did that super ambiguously on purpose so that you as you would choose as an audience member to believe or not believe. Um, and we think that scene may have been a reference to uh, um, something yeah, that happened would. historically. Yeah. Uh, we don't know for sure, but it seems like it is. So I'm curious at the end of the day, as you walk away from that film, 
Did he kill his wife or no? Um, I do think it is an uh, old Natalie Wood reference. Um, but if this is a movie that takes a spin on what happened in history and does the opposite, as the ending did, go. I'm going to say he didn't because it, it would go along better. with the rest of the movie. That makes me feel better. I couldn't figure out a way to actually tell myself that he didn't do it. But now that Jake gave that opinion, it helps me understand. But yeah, I mean, but when you watched it, like that scene is pretty, you know, did he do it or not, Sean? I'm going to absolutely say he did not. And I think the point of that scene, and I could be wrong, um, my interpretation of it is how gossip on film sets can yes. get a, can get out of control and ahead of people. And you're learning that he's essentially not getting work, you know, and is almost blackballed by the industry for this yes. rumor. And I think the entire point of the, not the entire point of the movie, but something that's emphasized throughout the movie is a lot of times this stuff is BS. And I think that that in particular, in terms of Cliff is BS. Gabe, uh, real quick, shake your head yes or no. You think he kills his wife or no? I don't think so either. All right, huh? let's Interesting. move on. Sorry. All right. I, I think it's a great question, though. I'd love we to know. have started um, a weekly poll on the on the show, and um, I'm already regretting it because it's requiring a lot more work on my part. I just thought it'd be something fun to put on social media. A lot more work, he means he didn't come up with a question this week. Right, exactly. And, and and I'm going to struggle to come up with a question almost every single week because I like to be impulsive. Literally what you do for a living. And Gabe is making me do this. So we have a weekly poll up on the uh, Twitter feed, which is uh, at RealBlend. And I wanted to ask the guys this. Now, I don't know. Have you guys seen the question that I put up there yet? Okay. Well, then you'll, you might know the answer. The question was, do you think that we have already seen this year's Best Picture winner? And by we... I'm saying the collective we, meaning has has this year's best picture already been released in theater? Doesn't count TIFF things because we're a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of uh, everyone else who's being able to see this stuff. Do you guys think that the the soon to be best picture winner uh, has been screened yet? I would say no, because essentially to me, what that question is asking is, is Once Upon a Time in Hollywood going to win best picture or something right. that hasn't come out yet? Because to okay. me, the only movie that's come out so far this year that is an actual contender for best picture would be once upon a time in hollywood okay and i just worry that it came out too early and the steam's gonna run out and a new cool flashy shiny thing's gonna come out that's gonna attract the um so i'm gonna take the field and uh, say yeah that's a that's a sports bet you would take the patriots or you take the field right essentially so you're taking the field kevin what about you I don't think we've seen it yet either, but I, I, I disagree with Jake on the losing steam aspect of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Um, that movie had some of the most incredible legs I've ever I've seen from a film. Um, and what I mean we by that— We've got a long way to go to— I know. My point, though, is that here's the thing. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood never became too much for people. It was never overly—like, like, you know, like uh, by the end of an Oscar season, a movie can be like— it could be promoted too much or talked about too much. Um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood never got to that quote-unquote annoying point where it was being discussed so much that you were just sick of hearing about it. Um, I think well, once already at that point with Joker, and Joker hasn't even come out yet. Yeah, that's, well, that's interesting. Well, that's because of the that's because of the conversation surrounding it. But we'll we'll get into that more detailed later. But I I think Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is in a perfect position um, because it's kind of like it came, it made a ton of money, it went. And it could easily come back. Well, if and it like, doesn't contend, they're going to really talk about that summer release date. 
It'll they, definitely contend. They'll, they'll question it. It'll contend. Well, I mean, well, they have to really then they have to reevaluate what was important. Was it to make money or was it to win Oscars? Because yeah, yeah. I mean, that summer release date yielded big box office. I mean, it may not have done those numbers had it come out. I don't think Quentin necessarily would say that he wants it, but I know that the studio wants to win it for him. Well, director, I'm saying director. I honestly think that the that Brad Pitt will get a supporting actor nomination for that. Um, I would love, but I'd love for him to get nominated for Ad Astra. So if if, if we have a, a situation this year where he gets leading for Astra and then supporting for uh, Once Upon a Time. All right, so here's my question. Who's the lead in Hollywood? DiCaprio? DiCaprio, yeah, I think so, Leo is. Okay, that's yeah, interesting. Okay. I think Leo is. Um, okay, but but we have a poll for this week, and I'm apparently going to post it on the uh, Twitter feed as soon as this episode drops, according to Gabe. And as we're looking ahead to Joker uh, and testing Jake's uh, patience in terms of how much we can talk about this film, uh, next week's poll is who is your favorite Joker up to this point? Now, we've had four that we're going to throw into contention. We're going to put all four of them in the poll. Obviously, we have... Um, uh, Heath Ledger, we have Jack Nicholson, we have Jared Leto, and we're going to put Mark, Mark Hamill. Hamill. Mark Hamill. Yeah. Not, Who is Caesar? Nah, I don't think so. I think we'll keep it this way. I mean, people can write him in. You know what's that? Is it like I always forget Jared Leto? Oh, you yeah. should. Sean, you by should. the way, you mentioned the new poll. What were the what was the audience results for the oh, uh, yeah, first one? Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, 35% people said that, yes, we have seen this year's Best Picture winner. And they mostly most people who commented on it said um, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. 65% said, no, we have not seen it yet. And truthfully, I, I just jumped over to Awards Daily, which is a pretty good uh, site that keeps track of this stuff. And they have a category for Best Picture uh, in terms of the films that they view as the contenders right now. And it's all stuff that's still to come. The only movie that they have in this category that they view as Best Picture nominees uh, outside of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is Rocket Man. And I don't think that that's the case. And I loved Rocket Man. I thought it was really great. But yeah, I, thought it was really I, great. I wish. I w- and I, and I, I would like to see Taron Edgerton make it. Oh my God, I'm so glad we're back talking awards. I know. Awards blend is back, baby. I, I do enjoy that. Okay, talking points, uh, news. So a story broke uh, earlier this week and it was super vague. And um, then Jake said something that my only reply to him was interesting because I knew if I opened up that can of worms, it was going to get really ugly. Um, But there was a report that Robert Downey Jr. uh, is reportedly returning to the role of Tony Stark for the Black Widow film. And this is possible because Black Widow obviously is a prequel. Uh, Footage that was shown at D23 and at San Diego Comic-Con suggested that the Black Widow movie is going to take place after Civil War uh, and before Infinity War. And it'll be right after Black Widow essentially helped Captain America and Bucky escape from the Germany airport battle uh, and then where she has to go on the run. So so Tony Stark at this point is alive in the in the storytelling. Now, if Downey Jr. does come back, does it, you know, sweep the legs of everything that they did to him in Endgame? I think that's largely the consensus. But after reading the deadline report of of him coming back, it it didn't make it seem like he was going to come back to shoot anything new. Like I felt to me like like it's a reference to maybe he'll be on a television screen saying like we're doing everything in our power to track Natasha down. Like Captain America was in Homecoming, right? Like kind of like in that classroom. Well, at least like Evans Evans recorded that. Yeah, that they're like repurposing a deleted scene from Civil War to use for. And that's fine. I'm okay with that. You know, I don't mind if they acknowledge the fact that Tony Stark is still alive in the MCU 
at the point this movie takes place. But I think bringing Downey back in any significant way would be a huge mistake because he was the driving point of the first three phases. And it's time for Marvel to move on. It's time for them to establish these characters and these movies without having to lean on Tony Stark as a crutch. I would say that much. No, I mean, I, I'm, I'm with Jake on this, uh, just based on our text thread. I, I just, I don't know. After Endgame, um, not that I'm marveled out or fatigued on that, but it is, there was so much discussion around that. I kind of want to break from it a little bit, only because I don't want it to ever be something I'm not looking forward to. Yeah. Um, and I think that, I mean, here's the thing. I understand it from a business standpoint. If you put Downey in the movie, which they're not going to tell anybody about because it's going to be a spoiler if it actually happens. So you, it, there's no reason to do it for press purposes in regards to bringing box office unless you're actually going to put him in the marketing. Um, I, I, I think the only reason you put him in the movie is because of marketing. But I don't know. I mean, like, that's the whole thing. And, and, and it kind of goes with the whole Scarlett Johansson thing, too, who also died in Endgame. So you're dealing with... You know, if she comes back, are there any, I mean, not because she's coming back, it's a prequel, but where are the stakes? Yeah, um, right. You know, how do you invest in it and worry about it? Um, so I think the argument could be made that if we're already having to deal with that conflict with Scarlett Johansson, putting Downey Jr. in there wouldn't be a problem because it would be the same thing of these two people are dead after Endgame, yet they're back in this prequel environment. Um, I... It's funny, I don't really have an opinion on it. I don't really know if I care or not care well, about it. Well, it's also just, like, what message did it send of, because I actually think Jeremy Renner's going to be in this movie, too. I think Hawkeye's going to show up. because That makes more sense, though. That would make more sense. But what does it say if we're, like, we're giving Scarlet her solo movie? It's Black Widow's story. Ooh, but quick, bring in Robert Downey Jr. Qu- yeah, okay, but... Okay, get Jeremy Renner, quick. Like, it's almost like saying you, you don't think she can carry this movie on her own, and that's crazy. Well, look at Homecoming, though. Homecoming... You know, that 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 question could have been raised about could Tom Holland carry his own movie, but they threw Downey in there. Downey was all over the marketing. Downey was one of the best scenes in the MCU is that scene in the in the car when he reaches over to grab the door. And, you know, there's there is it's interesting. It's an interesting question. Um, But then you have the argument of Tom Holland's homecoming. um, So, Jake, you say you're not excited about phase four. I'm not. I mean, like, I feel like every week there's a new piece of marvel news that really kind of uh solidifies the fact that i'm sort of checking out from marvel uh the lineup that they released from phase four if you could only see what sean was doing to me right now the lineup (laughs) that they released for phase four it's a couple of movies that i'm fairly intrigued and like yeah of course i'll see them a majority of it is nothing that i'm going oh my god i've got to because whenever i think of Something like uh, like you know Infinity War, Endgame. I think of movies under the guise of I can't die until I see that movie, sure. and then once I see it, I'm good. I can get hit by a bus. It's fine. <laughs> That's drastic. It's that super drastic. drastic. There's nothing in the MCU <laughs> that in Phase Four coming up that like if I were to get hit by a bus as yeah. the bus was coming, I'd go, oh no, I didn't see like yeah. I'm not I gonna disagree. Go, oh my god, I didn't see Thor four. Like, okay, I like, I'll be okay. Which one is yours, Kevin? Which one do you have to see I, before you get hit by a bus? First of all, <laughs> and I'm going to use this platform for two seconds to remind people how brilliant Doctor Strange is. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah I, Doctor Strange too, but like... No, it's, dude. It's not, uh, it's not. Come on. I mean, like... Doctor Strange 1 what is top 10 MCU for me. I love that movie. I think it has the best visual effects out of any MCU film. So it's interesting. Generally, Phase 4... I would agree with Jake, except for the fact that we're getting a MCU horror film directed by Scott Derrickson. That's so cool. I, I am all. But then in we for also that. lost Spidey, and True. now they're they're already undercutting 
what this big Iron Man death moment by 15 minutes after if he's dead that going, story's accurate. going, he's coming back. <laughs> You're bringing him back, baby. 15 <laughs> right. minutes after he's dead. I, th- I think I left, I, I texted you guys. The phrase I used was, I think I left my heart in Endgame. And I think I think that's truth. I think I, I think I'm good with MCU for a while. I think it's going to be a long time before I get jacked up for the MCU again. I want to give a shout out real quick. Uh, speaking of the MCU to the Rooster Brothers, um, who just directed the biggest film in the history of movies. Um, and we were all in Toronto for the festival and they brought a smaller film, I guess, uh, quote unquote, smaller film in regards to like, you know, it's not the end game scale called Mosul. And uh, I got to see it in Toronto. I got to uh, go to uh, an event with Joe and Anthony afterwards. Um, just a shout out to those guys because one, they probably didn't. That's the sound of a name dropping. No, I'm not. It's not a name drop. Um, yeah, this is the very definition of a name drop. Well, but I'm not doing it to show off. I'm doing it to give them props because I generally, <laughs> genuinely do think um, they didn't need to be there. Um, they no. showed up. They, they did a Q and A after this movie was over. This is directed by Joe Carnahan's brother. Mike, uh, I think it's Mike, Matthew Michael Carnahan, I believe. Um, and then they went to this event afterwards. And it, the movie doesn't even have a release date. It, it doesn't have an official distributor studio yet. Um, and it was cool to see them kind of like there trying to help this movie. And it's a very important story because it's told from the perspective of people on the ground. Uh, and and, and it's, it's, it's an Arabic the movie's in Arabic with subtitles. Oh, wow. okay. um, so you think about the risky element of a film like that. How do you get a studio to buy it? How do you get a studio to distribute it? And you put Joe and Anthony Russo's name on it. That gives it weight. And then you get them to do press. Yeah, yeah but, but it's cool, though. So I just wanted to give them a shout out because, like, they're riding that endgame wave and they they stepped down to – indie level which is where they kind of came from right i mean and and oh, yeah sure. and and they're and they're and it, it's just cool to see them using their voices to do something important and special like that so and they have 21 bridges coming yeah, and, out this and year fix arrested development because arrested development has sucked for a while yeah, yeah i'm sure uh speaking of sucking for a little while uh it it chapter two underperforming dude. compared to its uh original it wasn't film. good oh, underperforming come on it's underperforming dude it's underwhelming it's a weird three-hour R-rated horror movie that made ninety-plus million dollars. That's a follow-up to the biggest horror film of all time, essentially the highest-grossing. Okay, so let's talk about the box office right now. The domestic take for it is one hundred and fifty-four million dollars. Uh, the foreign take is one hundred and sixty-nine million. It's at three twenty-four worldwide. Uh, it's going into its third week, but it's slowing down significantly. We didn't talk in depth about it. Because we, th- we threw it to Bill Skarsgård when we uh, had him on the show, but we didn't get to talk in depth about it. I've been lucky enough to see it twice now. I went to go see it twice. I actually think it's better the second time when I kind of know what to get out of it. Um, but I brought PJ to it, and he said he felt the length. And he loves the first movie, too. Like, he's a huge fan. Um, we didn't talk about what didn't work. And one of the things I was saying that doesn't work for me is the cyclical nature of it. The fact that it goes through these introductions for each character and then they all show up in Derry and then they all have to go through to go find their tokens. And it's like Bill gets a scene. Beverly gets a scene. Ben gets a scene. But whose fault is that? Because, I mean, like King does the same thing in the book. We have to go back. and. But but that doesn't mean you have to do it in the movie, though. Well, like it, it was so you're repetitive. You're following the source material. And then also you have to worry about the fact that it's been two years. The average movie going audience isn't us. 
laps. They're, they're not going to go back and make sure they rewatch the first one to get ready for it. And there is a degree of like, we got to remind people who, which kid goes to which adult. And, and if they forget which kid has which sort of, uh, you know, SX, uh, sort of personality traits, I, I, I get why they See, felt they he, needed to do it. I agree with Jake on introducing them in the beginning of the film, though. Like when they get the phone calls and they go to the restaurant, I didn't need. 20 minutes of each character going to visit Pennywise again. Like it was like, that's the book, there was, but there was no stakes. Like you knew they were going to be fine. And like those scenes didn't, you knew feel. they were going to be fine in part one because they have to come back for part two. See, I, but see, here's the interesting thing to me. I didn't read it. Um, I also didn't know which kids survived and which kids didn't survive. I didn't even know that one, that one character ends up committing suicide. I, I have not read. That's a huge scene. Right. I'm so, glad they kept that. Me, yeah, me too. Yeah, but they downplayed it a lot more than I thought they were. They did significantly. In, yes. in the book, Jake, do they do the fortune cookie thing? No. That was, I thought that was kind of clever. I like uh, that. They actually show um, what it in blood looks like uh, uh, whenever he writes it. And, and it doesn't look like it does uh, in the movie. No, it's shown so quickly in the Very movie. Very quickly. I, they yeah. really kind of blew past that, which I was I'm like defending this movie, though I'm also – I will be the first person to say that it chapter two has a lot, a lot, a lot of issues. I just think you can't really knock Andy for too many of those. When a life, I think a lot of those issues come from King's source material. You know what I loved though? King's cameo. King's oh, cameo is yeah. terrific. The best cameos. Oh, Which, sure. By the way, we, I did an, We did an interview with Bill Skarsgård and at the time of that interview, he had never met Stephen King. I think he eventually met him like a week or two later. That blew um, my mind when you that told me that. That blew my mind. But uh, I, I want to say one thing. I actually, I liked the film. I did not love it. I had some major issues with it. Um, it's not that bad, though. It's it, it's it's it works. It's entertaining. Um, Isn't it amazing that it exists? Yeah, it, yeah. it's, a, it's yes. a pretty wickedly wild film. I will say this, though. When you put on part one after seeing part two, it is a gigantic, gigantic, quality difference children be chased by a demon is just infinitely on paper more interesting than watching adults being chased by a demon okay let me ask you this question now bill skarsgård has been saying in interviews not in our interview no 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 they've had discussions about a third one and you know done with the character in my interview you know that no studio can let a cash cow like this die and that they will come up with some freaking the Matrix is coming back for part four. Like franchises do not go away. I think so he's done with it. Do you? OK, well, OK. Do you think they'll come up with some other way to do Pennywise like out, outside of him? Is there a lost Skarsgård brother that they can find? In the book, there are a lot of references to different yeah. moments in dairy history where he sure. showed up. And some of the stories are actually pretty cool. Yeah. I don't know if they're cool enough to um, my dog <laughs> kissing me right now. I, what do you think? What do you think? <laughs> So, but if they did a prequel, you'd be okay with it? No, I would not be. But, but I will say that because all of the, the stories, the backstories that they talk about that aren't even mentioned in the movie, I don't think there's enough there to flesh it out and make a whole movie about it. Right. Yeah. No, I would agree. Um, okay. Wait, Andy and I, what are you posting in here, Gabe? This is the quote? Oh, this is per Joe Blow. Uh, is this, um, is this Bill Skarsgård saying this? Okay. Gabe is putting the quote in right here. He has said, Andy and I have discussed ideas for what a third movie would look like. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's quite what people expect. It's something different. The first two stories are the book, and the second film is the end of that story. So we would do something quite literally off book. There are a few ideas floating around. 
I feel like I've done what I can. Floating with around. The, <laughs> with the incarnation of Pennywise as we know him. So I think it would be a cool idea to change up a few things. As we know him. So not that he wouldn't come back, but he wouldn't come back as the clown. Yeah, I mean, if you our audio of our interview on Real Blend says he's done with the character. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know what to believe now. Well, I hope he is. All right. This week in movies. Uh, anybody seen Where's My Roy Cohn documentary? Where's My Roy Cohn? Nothing? Okay. Uh, Downton Abbey. I see Downton Abbey tomorrow. Have you guys seen it yet? I haven't seen it. I did a, uh, they, they came through, uh, DC. I, I wish I remembered the answer to this. Uh, I'll post it eventually. Okay. Um, I never watched Downton Abbey. So I, I approached those interviews from a perspective of somebody who had never seen the show and whether mm-hmm. or not this movie would work without seeing the show. Um, the Lord, I sure hope it does because yeah. I haven't seen it either. <laughs> and so I'm going tomorrow night. Lord Julian Fellows, uh, he goes by Lord, um, is That's the creator dope. of the show. Um, and I asked him where the name Downton came from, and apparently it's never discussed in the show. It's never even mentioned as to why it's called Downton Abbey. It's just the name of the area where, the, where you know, the where, wherever it is. He told me this fascinating story about his family and his grandfather and how Downton came from that. I, was, I, was, I just figured that it, it was talked about at some point in the six ep series uh, seasons of that show, but it wasn't apparently. It'd be great um, if no one's ever asked him this. He's like, I, I was wondering. <laughs> I've been for years. Uh, but um, it was cool. <laughs> Hugh Bonneville came to D.C. We actually did the interviews at the British Ambassador's Residence, oh, um, cool. which was kind of cool. Um, so Mich- Hugh Bonneville, Michelle Dockery, um, I just kind of had fun with them. I, I, I mean, I asked probably a stupid question, but that I actually wanted to know the answer to. How often do they accidentally type or or write downtown instead of Downton? And they all had hilarious answers about their phones <laughs> autocorrecting. It was actually super interesting because they all do it. Like Michelle Dockery is like, I used to do it all the time. I used to write downtown all the time. So it was kind of a cool, I don't know. That's I had funny. fun with it. It wasn't, I didn't like take it like so seriously where I was a fan of the show, but it was actually kind of fun to catch up with them. But I've heard, I did hear in my interviews, because I was right there, um, that that you can see the movie without watching the oh, show. Oh, I think they do a big um, catch-up at the beginning of the movie. For, I don't for think people so. who have not seen the show. Oh, really? Okay. I've heard they do. I've heard they do. Oh, they they said that there's no, like, super crazy catch-up. It's more of just, like, an isolated it's story. on Downton Abbey. I mean, yeah. the, the, for an hour. <laughs> because the concept is, the concept is, that would actually be pretty clever. That would be really they did. I, would, I would actually appreciate that. Half if the they, movie is catch-up. Yeah, but, I mean, the... The storyline's pretty simple. The King and Queen of England. For every MCU movie, they catch you up with the previous 23. I'm amazed that they never had Michael Pena's character from Ant-Man. Oh, I know. A recap. I mean, they they talked about that for so long. Yes, that would have been really great to do. Okay, I know no one has seen Rambo Last Blood, right? Because I don't think they've press screened that. Well, they did a press conference for that. Okay, this is interesting. They did a press conference for it, and they showed it to people who were attending the press conference. We sent somebody from Cinema Blend. Uh, then I saw friend of the show, Chris Van Vliet, doing an interview with uh, Stallone and the girl who's in the movie. And I was thinking maybe because he's a Miami outlet and Stallone lives in Florida. Do you think maybe that's why he did it? Oh, they did. Okay, that's interesting. That so, was a, It was a Miami press day. And Chris, okay. uh, Chris had a great bit with... Uh, I think he had Rambo talk to Rocky, and it was like a really, really funny um, moment That's if you funny. have a chance to see it. Yeah, But I know, like, I don't understand a word Stallone said in that bit. <laughs> Some it's of those guys though. do, because they love Deco Drive. They watch him on Deco Drive. I know The Rock has talked about that, like he's seen him on that. Uh, that's pretty funny, too, because we had the audio from the press conference, and I was trying to pull quotes out of it. And, 
you know, the way Stallone talks, it's beyond conversational. You know, it's like his own language almost. And so I was like, I don't know how to transcribe this. I really don't know what he's trying to say. Mm. Um, But opening this week, a movie that both of these guys have seen and not only seen, but spoken to the star of it. Brad Pitt's Ad Astra. So without spoiling me completely on the film, and I will point out the irony of the fact that there was a screening here in Charlotte for it, and I missed it uh, because I had tickets to go see the Panthers uh, lose to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers with my oldest son, PJ. Uh, I understand this is a father-son movie (laughs) that I probably should have... I'm glad that I skipped it uh, in order to go see a... uh, in order to do something with my son... Tell me about Ad Astra. Jake, I think you said it's going to make your top 10 for sure. Uh, it's absolutely going to be my, make my top 10. I wow, mean, it that's is, awesome. it's uh, the best way I can describe it is, and, and James Gregg confirmed this with me last night, that it's an accurate description, is that it's 2001 meets Apocalypse Now. Uh, first of all, uh, Hoyt Van Hortimer, it's the most <gasps> beautiful cinematography Hoyt Van Hoyt I've Hoyt seen yeah. uh, uh, all year. It's the most beautiful cinematography I've seen all year. Um, it's funny because the studio keeps releasing these big action spectacle clips, but it's also a very quiet, personal movie. It's uh, a very internal. It's very sort of a read between the lines. They make uh, references to, to different attributes of certain characters that you never actually see. They talk a lot about Tommy Lee Jones' character. Tommy Lee Jones plays the, the father of Brad Pitt. They make a lot of references to what kind of man he is, but you never really see examples of that. So you have to really kind of like listen to what they're saying. But I just think it's just such a beautiful journey of a guy who his entire life has been chasing his father and to the point where it eventually his the movie is about him literally going on a chase to find his father. And about, you know, as as sons, this is something we can all relate to, sort of that that, you know, wanting to live up to a father and be our father. But sometimes this wasn't the case for me, but for some people, they when they reach reach into that road, they realize that father's not all that great of a guy. Mm. And then where do you go from there? If your entire identity has been wrapped up in trying to be your father, oh, God, and I'm then you realize, case. holy crap, oh. my father's dick. Yeah, where do you, where do you go as a person? Well, I guess the minute you cast Tommy Lee Jones, <laughs> you kind of know what you're getting out of that role. Uh, Jake, is there corn? He's making an interstellar question. <laughs> is there a cosmic bookcase? Uh, no, I, I give it zero out of five <laughs> corns because there was no corn. Okay. Um, but I take uh, – this is going to – okay, I, I, here's here's my hot take. Yeah. Ad Astra over interstellar. Ooh, interesting. All right, Kevin, your turn. Uh, I'm not going to respond to that or even, <laughs> or even legitimize that comment. Um, no, Ad Astra is amazing. It's top ten, no question. Oh, it wow. Is, it is – it's funny because Mad Astra. Yeah, <laughs> I. Um, Who are you guys? That was funny. No, no, and it was funny. We we wasted all the good <laughs> ones off air. Like Jake, we were. Jake literally had like three great yeah. Ad Astra puns before. The like show Jake started. was. Jake became me, and I became Jake. I was like, oh, that's that's not great. Or but there was some so great Ad ones. Astra. Yeah, we interviewed Brad Astra. You know, it's all about movie made me Dad sad. Astra. Astra. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, uh, 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 Brad Pitt's favorite ca- uh, character in the movie. He's a big Breaking Bad Astra fan. So wait, so if you both say it's top ten material, do you think the movie is uh, the studio is botching this? Because I feel like no one really knows what this is. So here's the deal. Um, it, 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 it's a tough sell. Uh, yeah. It's it, it's it's a quiet film, but also I think it's a lot more action packed than people are giving it credit for. It is. Okay. 
super intense. Um, okay. There are four gigantic action set pieces in that film that I thought were mind blowing. Um, the one you've seen in the trailer where he's falling from this, you know, part of the sky down to earth. That scene is absolutely insane. Um, but then there's a battle on the moon, which you've seen parts of in the trailer. There's a, there's, there, there are scenes in this film that are truly mind boggling how they were able to pull these off with the budget that they had. I mean, this is not a $200 million film. Uh, this is less than a hundred million. It looks like a two hundred million dollar. Yeah. yeah. Um. But Hoyda Van Hoydema, that cinematographer is after Interstellar. It I, I've just been blown away by his how beautiful uh, his vision is and his and the way he photographs sequences. This is a movie shot on thirty five millimeter. And I was, it's funny. James Gray was at the um, carpet last night, and we'll get into the interview shortly. Uh, but when James Gray shot their Lost City of Z, I believe he was in like in a Colombian jungle. It was in the Colombian jungle. Um, he had no way of processing his film and seeing his dailies. They had to fly his dailies out of Colombia, I believe, to London to get them processed and then bring them back. And that's how much he cares about the way celluloid looks. Um, and there is something about the vastness and beauty of space watching it filmed with a 35 millimeter camera. I know they're not literally shooting space, but it, it, it it's that grain. It's that 3d quality. There's something about the way the image swims as you're looking at the vastness of the stars, almost the grain almost becomes part of the stars. Um, Brad Pitt is, I think he, and I said this before on the show, I think he might be one of the most underrated actors of all time. And I say that because we've said this before. Jake and I have had this discussion. He's so famous. He's such a massive star that people don't really ever stop to think about how brilliant he is as an actor. Um, you go back to Snatch, 12 Monkeys, uh, you know, Fight Club, uh, Legends of the Fall. The guy has such an amazing range. And this film is such a slow burn of an arc of a character. Um, you're dealing with a character who's very, very uh, not, he doesn't let his emotions ever show. And there's this idea of masculinity and this idea that, you know, if he's a man, he, he, he can't cry or he can't show a vulnerable side to himself. And that's kind of what the movie examines is this idea that when you let yourself free, when you let yourself actually show emotion, that is when you become fully human. Um, and we, we walk around a lot hiding ourselves and we walk around a lot like not, you know, and, and it's a fascinating thing to deconstruct in the middle of a gigantic two hour space hmm. adventure, um, which is why I found the film so interesting because there's so much to chew on thought provoking wise. But then there's also an amazing amount of action uh, that I thought was well placed. It was well paced. And it's just incredible. Well, then, if you can go back and watch Jake's red carpet interview uh, with Brad, you hit him with some serious questions. <laughs> like these were not red carpet questions. Was so. heavy for a red carpet. Yeah, just talk about like coming up with those and what answers were you hoping to get out of him? Because I thought the most honest thing that he said to you is, "I can't give you a one or two line answer for that." Like he almost knows in a carpet, I got to talk fast, I got to talk brief. I'm selling it in a soundbite. But all the questions you gave him were not soundbite questions, which I thought was tremendous. Thank you. Uh, I will say he he 
Yes, he did. At one point I asked him a question and he even said, yeah, like, I don't, I don't have a one or two sentence for that. And, uh, I think the outlet that was standing next to me that he just came from is an outlet that's known for only wanting one or two sound bites. So I think he was sort of confused by the fact that now I actually wanted to have a conversation and then follow, <laughs> following me was Kevin. So it kind of kept the thread going of people that actually want to have legitimate film conversations. Um, but I actually felt that he was very open and honest on the red carpet. I talked to him about, I mean, the whole term, um, uh, ad Astra, which is Latin, it means to the stars. It comes from a phrase uh, uh, per aspera ad astra, which means uh, uh, through hardships to the stars. And so I, we use sort of that as like a catapult to sort of talk about the fact that, you know, you have to have these hardships to get to this point in your life. We talk about the hardships um, in his life, which is like all about, I guess, getting out of his head, which I thought was interesting. Uh, we talked about uh, a, a quote that he said recently, which is that if he takes a role these days and needs to speak to what's going on in his life personally. And I was like, dude, this is a really heavy freaking movie. So what does this say about you? Like mm -hmm. if this, if this spoke to you, what does it say about what's going on with you? And, uh, he gave, he it's, it really talked, talked about like his place and family and like the, where you stand, uh, to be able to help people and, and, and like where you stand to people that are important to you and for people that are important to you. And then obviously it's such a big father son movie. And we talked about, uh, I asked him which of his roles did his father most have the impact on and he said, I'm going to say Fight Club just so if my dad hears this, he'll go, what? <laughs> and Jake got all this in less than three minutes, by the way, which is amazing. It was real fast. And, uh, and he did, but he did go on to say that he's starting to see his father in his movies more in all of his roles. He said he started in, in his own mannerisms. He's starting to see his own dad, which I think kind of starts to happen to all of us as we get older. He said that, the, you know, the more that as he gets older, he's, you know, he's but he did. He ended on, on a great line. And I think it stuck with you, Sean, as a dad. He said, everything cool about me is my dad. Did he also see uh, Robert Redford? Because I only see Redford when I see Pitt on screen. <laughs> I was talking to someone about that today. Isn't it nuts? He really is kind of growing. I, I think specifically in uh, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, he really is kind of growing into that. I mean, which Jesus, I mean, if you're going to grow into anything. <laughs> yeah, I was just going to say not that. that Pitt needs to worry about like who he's growing into looks yeah, wise. Right. But if you're going to grow into anyone. Uh, I feel like I'm growing into Bobcath Goldthwaite. <laughs> <laughs> the police academy <laughs> which is uh great bobcat was an uh, inspiration uh kevin you got some time with him in addition to some longer time sitting down with him and you said he comes across as a huge film geek yeah well going back to the carpet um it was it was interesting because we he was he did get really deep on the carpet oddly enough which was a really cool thing to experience because carpets again are very quick and they're very hectic um one of the things i found fascinating about him was because these, because he talks about the idea of taking roles that speak to him or roles that he feels like if his life has lived a certain emotional realm that he can then play that a role that deals with those emotions. So I asked him if a role has ever changed him. Like, have you ever used a role therapeutically to uh, change something that you were going through? Did it help you through something? And he gave me this amazing answer, I thought, about... When he grew up, his dad would work nine to five, Monday through Friday, and then half day on Saturday. And he's, he was comparing the idea of being an actor where you can spend months at a time on one character and actually – you can actually think about your life at, with that character. His dad didn't have that opportunity as a as somebody who worked the hours that he did. So he kind of looked at acting – in my opinion, his answer is a very therapeutic way to help him through things. I thought that was interesting. Um, but yeah, I mean, he was he was really cool. I mean, I, I was I was fascinated to talk to him about acting through a, a visor, which is 
interesting to me because when you're watching him in the film and he's not speaking any dialogue, he's very, very internal in his performance. Um, so, yeah, so we were talking about uh, the idea of, you know, how roles can help him through emotions in his own life. We talked about, I asked him where he thought Floyd was now from True Romance. He says he's probably hanging out with the Big Lebowski, um, <laughs> which, which I think is an amazing That's thought. That's a great image. Think. Could you imagine Floyd from True Romance hanging out with the Big Lebowski, like what they would talk about? Um, but what was, what was interesting to me was the idea that he had to act a lot through a, you know, through the visor um, and the emotional idea of that. And he told me this great story about how he would bring James over and he would say to him, if I'm getting boring, please pull me out of that because I, I, I need to know because I'm, since I'm not speaking a lot in these sequences, I Is need it to know. him by himself? Yes, it's it's his really? movie. It's, yeah. I mean, like all of the co-stars that the trailers say are in the movie with him are sporadic. Yeah. And Interesting. Then today, specifically, I was able to sit down with him one on one for an eight minute discussion, like kind of going through the movie. But also he is one of the if not the biggest film nerd in the best way possible that I have encountered at that level of celebrity um, in the sense of all he is such a fan of shooting on film. He was talking about Hoyt Van Hoyt. He was talking about Roger Deakins. He was asking me questions about Paul Thomas Anderson. We were talking about celluloid. And he was like, he was so happy that the two films that he was in this year were shot on 35 millimeter film. He was, he was like, he was just like thankful for it. Like he seemed like he was very happy to be back in that flow. And, you know, he talked a lot about the first movie he ever saw that made him want to be an actor, which was Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid. He said he watched it on the hood of his Redford. Yeah. So he told me this great story. He said that he would he went to a drive in with his mom and his dad, his brothers and sisters, and they sat on the hood of the car. And when Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid was playing, when it ended, he said that he was crying so hard because they were dead and he had to hide his face from his mom and dad because he was embarrassed that he was crying in front of his parents. Um, And he was just saying that that was the when he saw it, he didn't know at the time that he wanted to be an actor because of that moment. It wasn't until years later that he looked back and reflected on that moment and said, that's what I want to do. That's um, amazing. And that, I thought that was really fascinating. He also talked a lot about Fight Club um, and David Fincher. And he said Fincher and him see each other almost weekly. Dude. He said, he said that Fincher changed his career. He said it was the first time he was able to talk to a filmmaker about filmmaking and someone who had substance enough to actually break down the thoughts of the way films felt. And he said that Fincher genuinely changed his entire trajectory um, in regards to the films he wanted to do. And uh, he was talking about, you know, Fight Club, specifically the shots in that film. He talked a lot about just everything. It was it was wild walking down a path with him to talk about just anything that he had done in his career. He talked about Jesse James. We talked about um, so many different things. But cinematography is a huge thing for him. And this is the last thing I'll say. And I, I've never been able to ask an actor that big a question about their relationship with the DP. And I had some time with him today, which was I'm so thankful for. So I, I, I was able to ask some questions I just wanted to know the answer to in regards to as as Brad Pitt, when you work with Deacons, Robert Richardson, Chivo, uh, you know, everybody you've worked with, what is your relationship with that DP? And he was just walking me through how he would sit there with a DP and they would laugh together. And he never knew what his shots were going to look like. He said, every time I'm on a set, they always say, 
that's not what it's going to look like. And he'll look up at the monitor and he would, he pointed out the frame of the monitor and he goes, I have no idea what that shot is going to look like once it's processed, color corrected and on the screen. Sure. And for an actor to have, for an actor to have that trust to know that this will be fine. I just need to do my job. That's a fascinating trust that you have to think about. And as I was leaving the room, he just kept talking about film. And we talked about Chivo, Children of Men. It was, it was just, it was just pretty surreal. You were like, Brad, I have to go. No, no, <laughs> I have a real blend. It was, it was, it was just really, it was just a really cool thing to be able to talk to him That's about awesome. filmmaking. And he yeah. was so great about it. Um, and yeah, so when oh, he did say that Lebowski and Floyd, he followed up and said that those guys would have they would get nothing done but it'd be the funniest thing ever to watch them like hanging out i would love to see that well you have given me the best transition possible uh we've talked about hoyt van hoytema on this show and how many podcasts honestly are you gonna get a a hoyt van hoytema shout out going into a roger deacon's interview so i gotta give you guys all the credit in the world and this is really funny behind the scenes stuff about how this how these things happen as the guys mentioned um, when the Goldfinch was doing its junket up in Toronto and Roger Deakins' name was listed, he was doing very limited press. And again, if you do a TV day, the cinematographer is usually just not somebody who would sit in and do uh, television interviews. So he was picking a few print interviews here and there, doing a couple of interviews for um, for the web. And Jake and Kevin immediately were pushing Warner Brothers like, we want time with Deakins, we want time with Deakins. But the problem at Toronto is just that the schedules change so drastically. And a lot of times you're committed to one or two other things and you have to end up sacrificing. And at one point, Roger Deakins was going to be able to do a time that I could not make, but these two guys could. And they wanted to do him specifically for And Real Jake Blend. and I, by the way, were in my room the day that Jake <laughs> flew in and we actually wrote 10 questions together, which we never sent to Sean. I'm sorry. Um, <laughs> even though he kept texting us. Well, Jake and I were in the middle of interviews all day long. And, Jake, and yeah. Sean's like, Toronto hey. is a very crazy yeah. thing if you cover it, I mean, uh, whether you're covering it yeah. just to review movies or to do interviews. Yeah. It's, it, it can get nuts. And I saw nine films. I did three junkets in a, in a matter of like four days. So it was, it, and, and, and again, nine's not a lot because my wife's saw 20 um Jeez. and sean probably saw more but like you know lauren yeah, saw, saw 17 lauren, lauren saw 20 movies yeah, um that's a lot. and so throughout the day jake and i had written these questions we're all excited um can we tell the story about running into deacons real quick that because that well, was yeah kind of fun yeah thing. that's what well so i had said to them i said well look you guys just do it you know do the interview let's just get him for the show for sure and then you guys saw him the morning that we were supposed to get him how yeah. did you even bump well, into well, him? after we had realized that we weren't so, the, so there ended up being this this massive shift in schedule that was actually ended up being fortuitous because Deacon's day got shifted up uh, so that prepare for a couple of name drops where when he was available, Kevin and I wouldn't be because Kevin and I would be with Adam Driver like you do. <laughs> uh, but fortunately for us, that worked uh, the, the, the Deacon's time worked out so that Sean and Gabe could be there. So luckily we ended up getting him. And so obviously, you know, like. You know, we're glad that Sean and Gabe get the opportunity. We're glad that we can get Deacons on the show. But I, I think I can't speak on behalf of Kevin. I'd be lying if I said I, were, I weren't like a little bit disappointed that I didn't get oh, yeah. to meet him. Oh, and we were all of a sudden, I was yeah, super bummed. Yeah. So Kevin yeah. and I were walking into uh, the Ritz Carlton in Toronto to to do our interviews for Goldfinch Hotel and, Drop, and all of a sudden, yeah, to have exactly. lunch with Nick Cage. Were you having like lunch you with do? Nick this Cage is before this we had lunch with Nick Cage, <laughs> and all of a sudden, which we should tell which that story too. Lying. All of a yeah, sudden, we hear a gap. I hear a gasp, and Kevin goes. It's Roger Deakins. <laughs> I saw his beautiful hair. I got, I, I was, I, so I, I'm walking in this hotel, and 
any <laughs> actor you could ever imagine could be walking through those hallways at any second. I'm like, Tom get out of the Hanks. way, Tom Hanks. Anybody could be walking through there. And I see the gorgeous hair walking out of the <laughs> elevator uh, area. And backlit? Was he backlit? And the he best part is beautiful. that like, every, everyone in the Ritz-Carlton lobby around this weekend is sort of on edge looking for celebrities. <laughs> everyone expects for there to be a celebrity in the lobby because that's where they're all staying at in Toronto. And so when Kevin and I geek out, you could see everyone in the lobby start to try to scramble to see who, who it is, is that we're guy? geeking out about. And then they all kind of look and they're like, who in the hell is this guy? <laughs> I, it was crazy. I, I, so we walked right up to him. And, you know, so the, the idea is we want what's ever best for the show. And getting the interview, regardless of who did it, was that's all we cared about. It was definitely a bummer not to have been there for it. So this was the next best thing. And I think I think I kind of interviewed him there on the spot. I was talking to him about like assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford and how he got the blurred uh, elements on the left and right side of the frame. He's, he was telling us about these things called deaconizers, these special lenses that they had for the movie. <laughs> yes. uh, and I, I'm just like I'm like freaking out about it. And uh, Jake and I take a picture of them. He was so nice. I, That's I, the I actually, most nervous I've. So so just by nature of. All of us being together, and a lot of times we end up around celebrities together, and we'll, we'll sort of help each other out and take pictures of each other with different celebrities and stuff. But there's something about taking a picture of <laughs> arguably the greatest cinematographer of all time. I was like, my hand was actually shattered. I was like, I, I, have ta- I took a selfie with Tarantino earlier this summer. Like, I, like all the people we've taken pictures with, my yeah. hand was shaking because there was so, there's something ironic about trying to take a picture. And in my head, That'd I was like, if hey, you, like you show it to him, yeah. and he's like, huh. no, yeah, that's, that's <laughs> that happened to me with Steven Job Spielberg. security, baby. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I, 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 it was a really cool moment. So I mean, Sean, I, I want Sean to toss the interview. But this was a big deal for us to get this amazing talent on our show. I mean, this is this guy didn't win an Oscar till Blade Runner 2049 and just well deserving well before. that. And all I'm going to say, too, and you guys will be able to hear the entire interview. And he's paired with John Crowley, uh, who is the director of The Goldfinch, who did uh, Brooklyn, who did Brooklyn prior to this. And um, Crowley was brilliant enough to uh, to recruit Deacons for this. And you'll find out in this interview that Roger Deakins, I would assume, uh, is the most sought after collaborator in all of Hollywood. He tells it the way he tells it is that's not the case, that everybody assumes that he's the busiest person and they don't approach him for, for projects. Uh, but then also you'll, what you'll see in this conversation or hear in this conversation is just how incredibly humbling uh, humble he is, not humbling, humble, uh, and that he defaults attention oh, yeah. almost constantly yeah. uh, to the director. Uh, he let John Crowley answer most of the questions and thankfully gave his own opinions on different things and then weighed in after Crowley did it. But even trying to get him to talk about his Oscar win, it was very much the team and his collaborators and, and every bit the gentleman that you would assume, but enough, honestly, about me talking about uh, John Crowley and Roger Deakins, let us toss it to our exclusive Real Blend interview with, and we can say this now, Oscar-winning cinematographer, Roger Deakins. Deakins! Terrific. All right, okay. Yeah. All right, guys, we are here for an extended conversation about the new film, The Goldfinch, and we are pleased to be joined on the Real Blend podcast by the director, John Crowley, and his cinematographer, Roger Deakins. Hello, gentlemen. How are you? Very well. Hi, good. Thanks. Excellent. Good to be with you. Um, John, I'll start with you. I have to admit that 
even just seeing the term um, based on a Pulitzer Prize winning novel, <laughs> I got nervous for you. Um, is it any more daunting to try to adapt a film that's obviously a Pulitzer Prize winner than just grabbing a paperback novel, you know, at the airport that you'd thumb through really quickly? Uh, or do or you treat them? Do you treat them both the same way? Uh, I guess it is a bit more intimidating. But the truth is, you know, I mean, I read the book for pleasure long before I got involved in any conversations about about um, making making it. So my experience of reading the book was still quite vivid to me. And that's the thing you sort of hold on to, your compass, is, is, is trying to be true to that. And, and the truth is, you know, you can't really engage with second-guessing what people are going to make of an adaptation of it because it's going to drive you mad. You've got to try and be true to your own response to the material. And then when we started actually you know, in pre-production, getting on with making it, you're too busy to, to, to be second-guessing yourself. You're trying to, to make the right creative decisions about things. And, um, and, and we had a pretty good um, pre-production period where we, well, we talked a lot, didn't we? You and I had a yeah, we of time. Yeah, we did. And that's, that's what's helpful, is that you sort of, you put those things to one side, as it were, and you try not to think about perception and you think more about what you're trying to make from the inside out. When you're reading a book for pleasure, do you visualize scenes? No. What I mean by reading a book for pleasure is when you're reading a book and if it's, if it's doing what it is meant to do, it's working on you as a, as a great piece of writing and as a great piece of literature, and that's all that you are experiencing. I don't think of books in terms of, of um, shots and scenes unless it's probably a not very good book. You know what I mean? It's sort of a book like this just sweeps you up into the world and you just get lost in it. Oh, really? Interesting. And does that ever happen to you when you're reading a story? Yeah, it's interesting. I was going to say, my anecdote is when I go to the cinema and a film's really boring, I start watching The Grain or, I, you know, I watch little details. Yeah. I, same for me. I read... I read this, I read The Goldfinch as a, a, as a book before I read the script. Uh, I'd been sent it by my agent because he'd heard there might be a film made of it. And my reaction to it is just like I'd read any novel. It's to the story, to the characters and gauging my emotional connection to it or not. You know, that's how I approach it, a book or a script. Interesting. Um, obviously, the casting of young Theo is crucial uh, to the film. So talk to me about landing on Oaks, um, searching for young Theo and what you saw in him what, and what you thought he brought to the, to the role. Well, there was a very long process, obviously, which began with our, our great casting director, Ellen Chenoweth in New York, um, wading through hundreds and hundreds of submissions and, um, you know, reasonably quickly. And of course, we're looking at lots of other parts at the same time. Reasonably quickly, Oaks and Ansel sort of came you know, into a smaller group very quickly and, and started circling around them. And, you know, the thing that was of least interest to me in a way was the cosmetic um, likeness of each of them. The thing that was really important to me was that each of them was expressing a certain aspect of what was true to the character in, at, 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 at that time period. Because what you're like when you're 14 is not what you're like when you're 25, even though the character has, has the same problem, essentially. So, and that followed through on, you know, the, the production. I didn't encourage them to talk to each other about each other's choices. I didn't show them any material from each other, you know, and I trusted that that, that um, the great 
hair, makeup and costume departments would take care of the externals of, of each of them um, because it, it, it just felt like it, I didn't want it to be about impersonations. And Oakes had an emotional, to answer your question, Oakes had an emotional vulnerability to him, which young Theo has in the immediate aftermath of those events. And he's sort of looking for an anchor in his life, whereas young, uh, older Theo is much more closed off. I mean, he has the same problem as, as the younger version of himself, but he's much more guarded. You know, he's, he's almost wearing these bespoke suits like a form of armor. Mm-hmm. And he's a young man about town who's a construction almost, of a self-created construction. And he's living in a world, he's sort of in this, this like tissue of lies, which is going to either kill him or going to have to be ripped apart if he's going to survive. And that's where Boris sweeps in. So, so Ansel was the one who sort of was able to embody that quality of being slightly cool and slightly detached, but having enough internal availability that a, that a, that a camera would be able to capture. It was, there, there were the aspects that I went for. I found it fascinating that the character of Boris um, in each of the time periods uh, opens up uh, a more exuberant version of, of Theo. You know, like when he finds uh, Boris at a young age, it allows him to sort of behave more like a kid. And when, when Ansel finally meets him later on, too, it sort of opens him up to that dynamic, I think, is really important uh, for those characters to connect on. I mean, he's a great character. Yeah. He, he's, a, he's, he's a great character from the book, eh? But, but also there's something of the trickster about him, you know, that, that, and he sweeps into the story and he's a bit like a pirate as well, I think. <laughs> you know, he's mad and bad and dangerous to know. And he's the kind of character who'd get you into all sorts of trouble, but is probably savvy enough to get you out of trouble as well, which is indeed what he, what he does, you know? So you're absolutely right. And, and, and that's why Theo is, is sort of unformed and, and certain aspects of himself get formed with... Boris, you know, and in lots of ways, what, what the, the book was very clear about and what we tried to hold on to in the story is that it, ha- it, it suggests, which a lot of modern films don't like this idea, that romantic love is not destiny and that romantic love isn't going to necessarily make you happy, that it's almost a busted flush in a sense in, the, in this story. The thing that, that is transformative in the story is the power of friendship and not in, an, in a cozy way. I mean, Boris and Theo don't see each other for years, but Boris re-enters Theo's life feeling a, a, a degree of a need to atone for something and a need to put something right, um, which is very, very deep and visceral in him. And of course, Anarin brought a great strength to that in the, in the, in the playing of it, you know. So, um, so yeah, so, so that was, that's Boris. I love it. Mr. Deacons, I'm going to assume that every filmmaker with a project would love to bring you on board, uh, that you have a lot of offers uh, for people who would love to collaborate with you. So how do you actually choose the, your next project? Uh, it's not really like that. Really? I know a lot of people think it's like that, but but most uh, most directors have a team of people they work with over a period, so it's, it's not quite like that. I I As I said, I had read the book, and my agent said there's a possibility that film might be going, and or being made of it. And uh, so I said, can you put my name in the hat? That's basically what it happened. So. And when you found out his can, name was in I the hat? I tell you my side of that. Please, right? I would Which is, of course, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I come along. I come along and I go, you know, the, the Roger Deakins, right? And then I get word back. <laughs> <laughs> From, from Nina Jacobson, our producer, saying, um, Roger Deakins is interested. And I actually did say the words to her, yeah, right. Okay, I did. I, th- I actually, and she said, no, no, I think it's real. And I went, real? Really? 
And actually, you know, and, I mean, and, and anyway, it, it's true. I did Lizzy, he will hate this story. Oh. So, so, and we met on the day that I had to go and do a big presentation to Warner Brothers, you know, with, with mood boards and trying to sort of in, encourage them to green light the film, basically. And that afternoon, I hopped in an Uber, came out to your house, and we sat and had a cup of tea and talked about it. And indeed, it was true. Roger Deakins was interested, and I had a giddy moment. Um, of going, oh my God, this is insane. So I, I don't want to be too much of a fanboy. <laughs> Sorry about that. But anyway. Why, why wouldn't it be interested in such a wonderful story? I know, but you know, I just, it, it um, it, it seemed, busy too, right? I was assuming you were busy. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. all out there. They can think I'm busy. That's why I'm saying you're struggling in my house waiting for a job there you go so he was sitting in his house waiting for a job and I knocked up in the door and potential directors up and comers Roger Deakins needs you to work with him please thank you <laughs> um, okay locations are incredibly important to the different aspects of the story uh, and so I'm curious from a visual standpoint also and just as a director how you approached filming uh the Upper East Side versus Las Vegas versus um, a location like Amsterdam and um, what you tried to capture visually from those places to sort of inform where Theo is uh, over the course of his emotional journey. Well, um, uh, you know, some of these things are determined, they approach them by production. We looked at a lot of Upper East Side uh, apartments and of course there are sound issues and there are issues when they're up you know that you can't you can't get equipment up high you could you know you couldn't light you couldn't there was various aspects of that so we wound up finding a house in upstate New York that could double that the size of the rooms and the architecture was appropriate enough but it was largely on the ground floor that that did great work for us with that um but, you know, in terms of our, our approach, it was it was being on the ground, looking. I mean, you just get in a van, you drive and you walk around and you respond and you begin to keep circling the, the conversation. would always come back to story and character, story and character, you know, and then places would become you know, would fall by the wayside for a lack of practicality and other ones would keep swimming into view because they offered you something that was perhaps expressive of something um, at the core of the story and, and that we felt was useful. We knew that we were trying to create a palette in the film where each world would be very distinct um, uh, visually in terms of with K.K. Barrett, our designer, um, and of course that conversation is going hand in hand with Roger and I talking about how we were going to actually approach the material with, in, in terms of style, shooting style, you know. So it's all going on all the time, but it's fair to say nothing replaces standing on a street or standing in a room and walking around, looking at it, looking at it this way, looking at it that way and experiencing it. Yes, I mean, you know, there's a creative and there's a practical considerations and... I mean, originally, as John's saying, you know, the idea of doing the Barber apartment on location, you know, wherever it was, Park Lane or Fifth Avenue, where it was meant to be, it would have been a nightmare because it was like five weeks of shooting or something, four weeks of shooting. And you think, yeah, you're up on the fifth floor and why do we need to see the view anyway? It's really about the close-up. Sure. It's not about that. It's about their little internal world. So <clears throat> that went out the window. And as John said, we used this house. So KK could dress it and do the wallpaper and make it look exactly what he, you guys felt it was. And then on the other hand, I remember in pre-production <clears throat> the discussion about Amsterdam, the Amsterdam hotel room, was we'd do that on a set for money reasons and either do a backing or blue screen. And when we talked about it, we'd go, uh, really? 
you know, we're in Amsterdam for so little time and that is so crucial that you feel Theo, adult Theo, is in this room stuck away from the world going through this torment about to kill himself and there's a word outside and I thought the location that KK and the guys found eventually that looked out over the canal was so perfect because there he is with a window that's almost like a cell like he is almost like a picture in a picture and the picture is what we see the view so that to me that was that was a place where it was crucial to see the exterior because the exterior was saying so much about the character but in the barber apartment it wasn't it was just the way the light came through the window so you know it's it's uh, you have to balance it within the schedule and the budget, but that's part of this discussion. And can you elaborate on Vegas? Because Vegas to me is such a distinct town because there's such the glitz and glamour of it. And then you guys go to the prefab, you know, mansions that pop up on the outskirts of it, which I think speaks to um, where those characters were uh, in their journey and finding ways to photograph that. Well, in terms of the early conversations with KK, I remember saying to him, <clears throat> it, it would be you know, in contrast to the world of the barbers, which is a world of, of high culture and a slightly airless quality to it as well. And the, the world of Hobies in downtown, more bohemian world and a more tactile involvement with culture. But when you go to Vegas, you, you're talking about um, an environment which is completely sort of non-historical and 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 uh, non-cultural in a way. And I had this idea that the KK, which is, it would be great if the environment felt like it was no older than those kids. If everything felt like it has oh, no history, and and um, and of course we, we were in it was Albuquerque. We shot that in, and um, uh, you know the the sque- scope and horizon offered us amazing scale for the film. Then and again, but again, it goes back to emotion, doesn't it? It goes back to yeah. what you're trying to express I mean, out it, those characters. It could have been Albuquerque. It, it could have been Las Vegas. It could have been any number of those towns. The suburbs look the same. They're new developments. Half of them aren't lived in, and then particularly even now, but particularly in the story, they were kind of built, and then there was a slight depression, so they were standing empty underwater, as they said, wasn't it? That's the term they call it. So, I mean, but also then for pr- practical reasons on working on a film that's not a huge budget, is there's much better tax break in New Mexico than there is in... Nevada. Sure, so. of course, yeah. Um, you do have this vast array of characters that are so fascinating, um, even outside of Theo and Boris. And so I'm curious, as you started to tell all the different stories, which are the ones you were most interested in exploring and, and maybe learning more about as you went through the process? Xandra's a great character. <laughs> and and yes. in Sarah Paulson's hands is incredibly vivid. But what I loved about what she did with it, you know, a, a part which could have become a bit of a comic turn or, or she held on to a sort of emotional depth to her and you, that you felt her own tragedy and you, you felt the complication of her disliking Theo moving into that house, which, right. was, which was glorious. It wasn't just an evil stepmom, you know, it was somebody who feels that her shot at, at, at a dream life with her new boyfriend was, was being destroyed by this interloper you know that was a that was really interesting um mr silver in this las vegas when he has one scene who comes to the door knocks on the door who who's the the 
New Yorker reinvented himself as a bit of a cowboy out in Las Vegas was a fascinating <laughs> character. There's definitely a there's definitely a spin-off series there, I think, you know. Um so yeah, it's uh, every which way, you know, that there there's a very vivid cast of characters. And what was unusual about the shape of it, of course, is that you sort of have young Theo or old Theo passing through all these different worlds and a lot of characters in these worlds not not knowing other characters in the world it's kind of discreet as it were you know that that um uh i remember being quite nervous that would that make it feel quite fragmented as a story but I, I, ultimately I, I i'm quite happy that it doesn't that it all feels of a piece you know but um yeah it's a great rich rich um uh, cast of of. It's what struck, struck me about seeing the final product because when we, like you're saying, when we're shooting, it's such amazingly rich characters, fantastic performances, but you don't know how they're gonna how it's gonna appear as a total piece to see them all mesh together. Right. And that was to me was just fantastic seeing seeing the cut. You know, I'm just now realizing, discussing it with you guys, how amazing to have one story that allows you to play in so many different sandboxes with so many different characters that still feel alive. You know, they still feel credible and believable. So that's a gift. That's an absolute gift. Um, in interviewing Miss Paulson uh, yesterday, I got a chance to sit down and speak to her, and she informed me that, uh, and I didn't do the math on it, but halfway through your shoot, you had to stop to allow Mr. Deakins to go attend the Academy Awards. And and you <laughs> won your Oscar M- Much shooting. to his reluctance. He, 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 he didn't want to. Shoot. No, was, <laughs> Wait, he had right. to be told to go. Tell me about this, please. I want to hear about this process. <laughs> you can see he's not somebody who's comfortable being looked at, even though he's one of the great visual artists of our time. And he just hates like it. that so, word. Stop that word. Look, see? <laughs> not comfortable. So, so much happier shooting on a set. Far less happy in a tuxedo on on a stage picking up a statuette. What can I say? So there's nothing more to be said than that. So when you came back to the set, it was not a you know the ego dri- <laughs> driving you through the process. Uh, you know what was nice because uh, <clears throat> all the people I was working with, by the gaffer, were people I've worked with for years and years and years, and a number of them were on Blade Runner. So it was as much for them as me, you know, that that was their Oscar as much as, much as it was mine. So that was that was what was really nice about it. And my camera assistant, for instance, I worked with for 30 years. So, I mean, I think it means a lot to them. I hope so. It absolutely should. Yes, absolutely. Um, I, were there other times when you felt like the, the people who did the work, you know, should have deserved the accolade, should have received the accolade because of... of work that you put into another film that you worked on prior to this that might have been nominated and you thought, oh, I wish that they were recognized because they did an amazing job on that. Um, yeah, they've always done such an amazing such amazing work. So it was nice nice that I could stand and thank them publicly really. But I mean I kind of thank them all the time. So <laughs> <laughs> And they're still we're still working together, so maybe that's kind of says something there. Oh, I think that's the legacy then for sure. Um, the pivotal scene of the explosion. Um, so important to the story, obviously. Um, but <laughs> Practically, it's hard to to stage it and to pull it off and to still pull through all the emotion that you need to power the story through. Um, talk to me just about choreographing and setting up how to do the explosion, how to film it, uh, and still allow your actors to get you know through all the beats that you need them to get through, so that the the impact of the story plays out all the way through that you need it to. It's fair to say that the explosion was one of the more sort of worrying aspects of this story, not just technically. It's sure. it's sort of the danger of that event being 
so massive that it, it creates a kind of center of gravity in the film sure. that the rest of the film, which is actually about a very internal, personal story about a young boy getting stuck in his grief and the shame and guilt he feels wrongly that he's responsible for his mother's death could be overshadowed by the more melodramatic aspect of that in staging it. Um, so, you know, the way, the way it wound up in the final edit was actually using it without even the sound on it. I mean, it's, it's used at, a, at, at, at the key point of his, it's twice, it's, two, it's used twice. You know, one is when he discovers that he doesn't have something, spoiler alert, that he thought he had. Mm. And the other is, is in his last moments in the hotel room in Amsterdam that Roger referred to earlier on. And in both cases, it's like a bloom of, a, of an image, that, a shard of an image rather, that comes back like um, an expression of almost post-traumatic stress disorder. And so much of the story that we, we kept circling back around how, and especially how to approach the, the mum, the mother, mm. uh, um, was sort of about, about trusting, not showing too much and like pushing it down the road as it were so that by the end there's that you you get to see more um rather than doing it in a in a linear fashion which is what the the book did so it was yeah we it was very um to be very careful with that image that it didn't overwhelm something but 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 became one of two major as he saw it major um uh, tragic events in his life. The first being the loss of his mother, the second being the loss of this object. Mm. And that, that that's how they were echoing off each other from his point of view, rather than it being an objective event that then dominated the film, if that makes sense. But also, you only see it as a memory, really. So it's his memory. I, and I think we talked about this, that I don't know if you had traumatic experience, but as a very young child... Um, you kind of see things in detail, so you remember little things. You don't remember a big, you know, action movie wide shot of the whole event. You might remember something seemingly insignificant, but that personalizes it. And I think that's what we were talking about before we did the the details of the hand or the the flute case. Or, you know, um, it's it's about those little details. It, it's about Theo's memory. It's not about the vent. Itself, you know. What is complicated about the um, execution of it, about the choreography and the execution when, when there's a huge pyrotechnic or in this case, it was like an enveloping, you know, wave of, of ash that almost overrun the, the characters when you're approaching it from a visual standpoint. Uh, does it present a larger challenge or, or you've had experiences like that that teach you ways to approach that? Um, well, there's always the element that until you see it, you don't quite know what you're going to get, isn't there? There's this sort of, because, you know, you lined up your cameras and, and the, the special effects guys made the big pop. And it was, you know, the color was slightly different to what we wanted. So we did have some technical challenges afterwards, okay. you know, but you get one go at it. And it was the last thing we got to do on the set for the, the, the Met, okay. obviously, for obvious reasons. So, um... So there's a certain amount of difficulty around that. And, you, you know, it was the, the one scene that you covered from, with multiple cameras as well. I mean, we... Yeah, that know, one, one shot, yeah. Everything else was, um, was far more singular. I mean, you know, you're, you're happy working with one camera, which is an approach I also love on set. And um, 
So that's something you guys discussed before finally going into yeah, it, yeah, yeah. that approach. And, and why do you prefer, why do you prefer that? I think it's a matter of just concentration, you know, on that one thing. You can only really have one shot on screen at a time. I think it just focuses you on that one moment. I, I think, you know, the whole thing about film, when you rhyme film as a mo- motion, it's all about that one moment. It's a precious, precious thing to capture that moment. I've always felt like that, really. And I think it does something very particular to the set, which is, is, is the concentration, as you say, is that everybody's focus is on that one moment. And it's one of the things that I adore about filmmaking, which is, you know, that there's hundreds of people rattling around and doing this. And this is this huge industrial process going on, you know, and, and, and walls being knocked down, thing, everything can be happening at once. And then everybody goes very quiet for 30 seconds and the focus is on, on that one thing. Right. And, and some, it, you know, it works for other people, but the idea of covering something with two, three, four cameras, unless it's an action sequence where you're going to get one go at it, feels like you're hedging your bets as opposed to working hard enough to figure out what you want to commit with that one shot and you know that that's what the essence of a of the film is it's a single viewpoint per time you're looking at one thing and so making it that way feels quite important to me oh, as well that's fantastic just to hear you say that because i feel like not enough people put that commitment in to concentrate no, i don't think it's that unusual i mean i've never i mean the way we worked I, that's the way i've worked for 40 odd years now. <laughs> I, I guess it was probably the, the way to work when you were shooting on film. And, and something maybe now with digital cameras, f- people feel, oh, you know, it's fine. It's, it's it, it, you, you know, you're not wasting stock. You just kind of, and it sort of yeah. cheapens more than the actual budget. It cheapens the approach to it, I think, on some level. Yeah, that's a danger of technology kind of like, you know, um, well, that's running the show. You know, you have more cameras, you keep the camera rolling, you can move the camera more easily now so let's move the camera but that's not necessarily what you should or want to do for a particular moment in a, you know. and it doesn't make it better no it doesn't make it better it just, it, it just, it, it, it's you know more isn't better well that's a fascinating transition to what my last question was was this, was it shot on film because it looked like it was it wasn't it was shot digital <laughs> no, no uh, it, I had the grain and the composure that, that to me comes with film and you've obviously been a proponent of, of shooting more digitally but you still achieve a look of film um, what where's the technology at now and where do you see it going in the next 10 years are you still uh, championing you know advancements in digital filmmaking yeah I've only shot one film on film Hail Caesar was the last thing I did on film I mean I just shot a film with Sam Mendes with digital and um, Blade Runner with digital I mean I know I, there's so many advantages to digital I, I sent somebody earlier I mean to me it's like I can be on the set with a calibrated monitor and, and I can be talking to the director about the image and saying that's what we're shooting Whereas film, I mean, I know some cinematographers like the mystery of the black box and you'll find out in the morning at dailies. I don't like that. I like the conversation. I like the collaboration. I like, you know, it's, it's all about that discussion and figuring out how far you want to go and, you know. Conversation before you shoot? Like... As you're doing it, or you, or you watch a playback on a monitor on the set and say, well, maybe that didn't quite work or whatever, you know, I mean, yeah. It's much more exact, you yeah. know, and, and when Roger offers a shot, you know that what's being offered is what you're going to yeah. get in six months' time, yeah. as it were. It's, yeah. it's there, it, there is, there, it does take away that mystery element, right. you know. I mean, there are other aspects 
romantic aspects that I would feel attachments to film. But then I guess I grew up just at the point when it was the crossing over, you know, and um, I guess some of the more technically limiting aspects that happened very quickly when when the digital transformation happened, you know, it's it's harder for you to ex- to ex- a, a sort of exert a degree of creative control, isn't it, on, on film with labs perhaps than before. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's the, the backups going on film now. It's a shame. I mean, I wish it wasn't true. It's a real true, shame. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I love film. I shot film for 40 years or so, you know. Absolutely. And I guess the, per, the projection of it too is improving. The quality of the projection, you know, mm. to the point where I, I had to ask you mm. to clarify whether this was uh, shot that way. So as mm. long as they continue to close that gap between, you know. Well, any, every film now is digitized, unless maybe you're particularly Quinton or somebody who gets the cinemas to have film projectors, but there's still not the majority of people see that his films, they're digital projectors. Right, true. So you have a digital file, whether you shoot a film negative or not. Right. Um, before they wrap us up, I know we're going to get uh, kicked out of here in one second. Um, we are in the 25th year of the release of the Shawshank Redemption. Um, yeah, God, everybody God, who worked don't on remind it me, seems God. very surprised that it has the longevity that it does. I mean, what do you recall about working on that film? Uh, I recall when the film got released in the theatres, I think it made 1.5 million. And then 10 weeks later, they tried to re-release it and give it a different kind of publicity. And it made nothing. And then... It was released on VHS and it was on the top for a year. So go figure. <laughs> that was funny. That was really weird. It goes yeah. to show that you never can tell, I guess. You can't. It's very strange. Yeah, right. Yeah. It's a special film for a lot of people, though. Yeah. It yeah. is. It holds that resonance. So, um, as will the Goldfinch. And so I encourage everybody out there to go see the Goldfinch when it opens. And I appreciate you guys taking the time to speak to us today on the podcast. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Thank, Thank you. you Thanks. very much. Appreciate it, guys. That was great. Enjoyed that. Thank you. Obviously, we need to thank Warner Brothers tremendously for uh, giving us the time with both John Crowley and Roger Deakins. Uh, Again, as Kevin was saying prior to this, just an amazing get for a show like this. We hope you guys enjoyed learning more about how they put that film together and his collaborations over the years. Kevin. Were you deking out? Thank you, thank you. Yeah, all right. Thank you. Really? That? Jake? Thank you. I gave you Dad Astra? Stop it. That is really good. Thank you. That was really good. I know it was Thank good, you. too. I'm, I'm very on. proud of it. We, uh, this week, were playing hashtag Roger Deacon's Blend, and we added the extra element of not just choosing our favorite Roger Deacon's film, but we made you guys choose a shot. And what I loved about this is that somebody uh, chimed in. They were like, Skyfall, you know, on the Real Blend Twitter feed. And then one of our regular listeners, and I forget who it is now, it's just escaping me, was like, oh, you have to pick a shot. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. (laughs) I love love when people are like, I choose these three. I'm like, no, you don't get to choose three. That's (laughs) play the game. Well, Jake, you get to go first, I'm being told. And again, hashtag Roger Deakins blend, you are choosing your favorite shot from a Roger Deakins film. My shot comes from uh, what I think is his most beautifully shot film which is The Assassination Ooh. of Jesse James by the Coward Robert Ford. Yes. Uh, it's a very uh, iconic shot because I think there's a gif of it and it's in the trailer. So you, you, if you've seen the film, you're, you, you'll probably recognize it. It is a silhouette of Brad Pitt atop mm. the train at night uh, during the, the, the nighttime train robbery. Mm. And he is perfectly framed in the middle. It's, it's a perfect Brad Pitt silhouette. Uh, the train is black. There's a light behind them sort of the you know it's kind of dark around the edge and there's just something beautifully 
chilling about that that whole that whole sequence in particular is is gorgeous. Um, I feel like Deacons really his beauty really leans into when he's doing westerns or western like things like with something with No Country for Old Men. Um, I think he's he's mm. just a ma- he's a man who was made to shot to made to shoot uh, west. Did he shoot True Grit? Yes. He's he's made to shoot westerns. Um, to and, the point and, where I'm disappointed he didn't do Buster Scruggs. Yeah, I would have liked yeah. to have seen what he did with that. And I mean, and Brad Pitt is you know it's funny. I was telling someone earlier today. They asked me what Brad Pitt is like in person, and I said Brad Pitt is one of those people that when he walks into a room, you look at him and you go, "That's a fucking movie star." Like <laughs> yeah. that man deserves to have a camera shoved in his face for the rest of his life. <laughs> you know what's funny about and that, by he's the way? So beautifully I, well shot in that. I, I it's I felt that on the carpet last night, but today I felt like he was just a normal dude. Yeah, I mean, I, in yeah, a weird like way. In sit downs. He is a lot more like chill. Um, yeah. but there, but there's something. But and and red carpets do have a little bit more of an of an air to them. Um, but there, that particular shot from the assassination of Jesse James, it's it, it's haunting. It's beautiful because if you think about like Jesse James, like is not a good guy, uh, but he's just so like it's so it's so beautifully lit. But it's it, it it darkens him as just as a central figure, but also has this light behind him. And I think it's both metaphorical and it also says a lot about the character itself. And I went through all of Deacon's work and I went through a lot. Of, and there were a lot of shots that I was like, oh, God, it's going to pain me to not choose that. And whatever you guys choose, I know I'm going to look at it and go, oh, God, it kills me to not choose that. But I cannot choose. I think not only is this Jesse James's best work, I think that's the best shot from Jesse James. Well, before I because uh, I get to go next and I do want to just briefly, <clears throat> in case people haven't done this, uh, go over some of his credits. The Shawshank Redemption, uh, Dead Man Walking, Fargo, Kunden, Big Lebowski. Kunden is his only uh, time with Scorsese, right? I believe so. Yeah. Uh, Man Who Wasn't There, A Beautiful Mind, The Village. Oh, uh, God, no, The Village. No Country for Old Men. Uh, assassination of Jesse James, obviously. Oh, oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Uh, yes. Doubt, The Reader, Revolutionary Road, Serious Man, True Grit, uh, Skyfall, Prisoners, Sicario. Prisoners. Oh. Hey, Hail oh. Caesar. Uh, th- so that I, I made the joke that uh, the, the, to- the one time in the Deacons interview where I literally had to like put my hand on the chair and brace myself is when he talked about uh, the last time he shot on film was for uh, Joel and Ethan in Hail Caesar. And I was like, I- I'm sitting in a room where Deacons, ah, look, I'm actually getting goosebumps now just reliving that. I'm sitting in a room where Deacons is talking about shooting film for the Coen brothers. And I was like, what, what is this reality? What is happening here? Um, I, could not choose from uh, from his various perfect shots. Um, so I had to go literally favorite. And I'm going to tell you guys a memory uh, that speaks to the power of what Roger Deakins can do. Um, I, Michelle and I got married. We moved to Charlotte and we were down here for a year, uh, North Carolina. And the South fit us like a glove. Um, we I'm from New York originally, but um, I never really felt comfortable in New York uh, as a kid growing up and then I went to school in Washington, D.C., and then we moved to North Carolina. And North Carolina, like I said, was just our kind of speed. It was the South and everything about it was beautiful. And then we got a promotion. I got a promotion and it was bringing us back up to uh, Manhattan after being down here for a year. And we were young and we didn't have kids. And we said, hey, this has got to do it. It was for a national movies editor uh, position for a company called City Search. It doesn't exist anymore. But it was a movie job for a big time editor job. And I said, let's. Michelle said, good, let's do it. You know, if we're ever going to try it, we're going to try it. 
And we went up there and we weren't in back in New York for a week before we were like, nope, like this is just not for us at all. But we said, uh, let's tough it out. We'll give it a year, you know, see how see how it works. And we just were not happy. It didn't it didn't work for us. It didn't fit at all. And I missed Charlotte and I missed the South in a way that like I, I never experienced homesickness until that time. Right. And I was like, boy, I just we got to get back there somehow. And over the course of us being in New York for that year, we went out with friends to a movie theater and we saw Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? And while that is an exaggerated representation of the South, the landscape shots and the wide open, like you're in New York, everything's right on top of you. The oppression of that city makes me sick to my stomach. And I went into that movie theater and I watched Roger Deacon shoot to me the sunburnt bluegrass South, right? And I turned to Michelle at the scene where they were singing their song for the first time, the Foggy Bottom Boys, the Soggy Bottom Boys. And I said, all I said to her in the middle of that movie was, we need to go home. And she said, yes, we do. She said, yes, we do. And that was the moment. It was a December release. I'll never forget this because it was snowing as we were going into the theater. And we both felt it. We both were just like, that's where we belong. Like we have to go. And so I probably didn't even make the connection at that time that it was Deacon's. Yeah. But I, that's what he can do with a camera. Like he can convey that level of emotion that when I watched what he shot, I was like, I need to be back there. Well, that's so. why that's the power of someone using cinematography as a leading character. The Coen brothers yep. were fully aware of what Deacons could achieve with a shot. A shot could say so much. Look at the way it affected you. It's just, oh a sh- it's just a shot. And it's like, and like, and like, like you think about back on that movie is probably the most impactful thing on you in the sense of like, that's a great thing to think about. And the fact that you remember that over maybe a performance or an actor, um, that just shows you how important Roger is. Uh, the environment that he, sh- that he created yeah. with the Coens, you know, almost yeah, everything course. that I considered that Deacons did was, you know, the directors were contributing to it as well. Sure. Um, but I will never forget, uh, the way he photographed uh, Oh Brother Art Thou and how much it made me feel like that's where I belong. And so that's why I chose it as my favorite. Kevin, you get to go last. Yeah, I, I definitely do not have a uh, emotional story like that. <laughs> yeah, um, follow that. <laughs> oddly enough, I, I'm going to be a bit of a hypocrite here um, in regards oh. to my feelings on <gasps> film versus like digital. digital. Um, digital. So interestingly enough, I... Roger Deakins is probably the only Are cinematographer. Are you picking a digital shot? I am picking a digital <gasps> shot. Um, uh, Roger Deakins, to me, is you too, the, Yeah, is the one of the only <laughs> cinematographers that I've seen who's been able to achieve the look of film perfectly, in my opinion, on digital cameras. Um, that experience happened for me on Sicario, which is not my answer. Um, but when I first saw Sicario, I walked out of that film completely convinced that that thing was shot on 35 millimeter. Yep. I mean, it looked dirty. It looked gritty. And that was the moment where here's the thing. I, I, I love film. I love 35 millimeter film, but I understand that we are living in a world where both can exist. Um, even someone like Christopher Nolan, who's a gigantic film fan will, will probably would say, yes, there's, you know, it's okay to have both. We can live in a world with both. Um, and Kevin, I got to just say, cause I really regretted you not being in the interview with us at the, at the moments where we talked film digital yeah. because 
it, it was impossible for me to say to Roger Deakins yeah. you're, that you're wrong. You know, well, <laughs> how do you make not, that argument to him? It's not that he's wrong. It's more. Yeah. It's more that I feel his his background and the films he's worked on. He has able. He has enabled himself with a talent that he is able to achieve what he wants via the lighting and the setting of the shot. Yes. And I do think that in the right hands, digital can be done well. Everything, well, everything he approaches every setup as if it's film. Exactly. I mean, yeah. if, you, if you look at if you look at someone like David Fincher, who strictly shoots digital now. I think this digital. I think Panic Room Forward. I'll, I'll have to double check on that. But he swears by digital. I mean, it works for him because he does 100 takes of every shot and he needs and he can't run out of film mag. Um, but going back to Deacons, there was something special that happened to me on Sicario where I, 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 I as a film fan, I went to myself, you know what? It can be done if it's done correctly by the right mm. person. Um, so, so your choice. I'm going back before Sicario because this movie was shot digitally, um, Skyfall. And... <sighs> It's interesting because so beautiful. Oddly enough, when I think of Deacons, this is the first shot that hits my head, um, and it's the it's the silhouette shot of Daniel Craig in Shanghai fighting with oh. the massive. I think it was it like an uh, not an octopus, a, a jellyfish, or yeah, the, on the yeah, wall. Yeah, yeah, and I don't know what it is about that shot. I just first of all that movie. That movie far exceeded any expectations I ever had. And that's why I think Deacons is actually shooting Mendez's new film, 1917, um, which I can't wait for. Uh, which I think is one continuous shot. Is it? No. There's no. I swear they, they, I they, heard they, that they, today. They've done that before. There was a movie called Victoria, I believe. It was like a 104-minute one shot. They had to do it four I, times. I think it's constructed as a single shot. That'd be cool. Wow. I might be wrong. It's probably wrong. stitched like Birdman. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, Birdman was one shot, but not really. Uh, but yeah, I, that, that would be cool. I, I would like, I actually would think that's a fascinating way. Um, I bring up that, sky, that shot in Skyfall because it's funny to me, like that shot is the movie for me. Like I, if, if Skyfall came out in theaters and was two and a half hours long and they just put that shot on the screen still <laughs> for two hours, yeah. I'd watch it. I would Go and sit in that theater and watch it just to right. see it. I mean, it is it is one of the most beautiful shots I've ever seen ever in the history of movies. Um, and it's perfectly lit and it shouldn't work as well as it does. But that's my favorite shot. And I that's think awesome. overall, I think the greatest thing he's ever shot is Jesse James. I think if you're looking at an overall film, overall, every shot is perfect. Same thing yeah. with No Country. So. Oh God! It was so hard not to pick something from No Country. Um, who did anybody from the audience pick? No, Chipper Beale chose a shot from Prisoners. Uh, Shelby Jones chose a shot of Ryan Gosling walking through the city in Blade Runner twenty forty nine. Uh, Travs, Chris Hutton, Dave Holmes, and several others chose various shots from Skyfall. Oh, that the, there's a great silhouette of Javier Bardem walking, walking away. From the away. Burning yeah, house. that's the shot from Skyfall. I love. That's a really good one. Um, I love his silhouettes. I love a good silhouette. Yeah. Tom Chattelbash chose the railroad silhouette from Jesse James. Uh, and Pedro Fernandez and others chose various shots from Sicario. I saw a lot of people pick like the military sort of marching through the shadows and coming out through um, with Sicario. Gosh, I figured just, one of you guys brilliant. would choose Tim Robbins in the rain at the end of Shawshank. No, you know what I was going to choose from Shawshank was the camera pull oh, through the hole yes. behind the poster. That's a I, better shot, but the Tim Robbins is more iconic. 
The reason why the pull through the thing is a better shot is because it's one of the only shots that contributes to the story. It's the feeling you felt when they finally tore the poster yeah. down. And then, and then you're and like, then they oh, all God, like that's lean what he's been into doing? it to like look down the hole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's great. It's so good. And, and the score, the score rises. I would argue that David Fincher's best movies were shot on film. <sighs> Seven, Fight Club, The Game. I think Seven's his best movie. I think Seven's his best. Well, like Social Network is so goddamn good. Fight Club and Seven are, I think, better. Anyway, so much participation this week, and we want to thank everybody for playing along with us. Obviously, you can search hashtag Roger Deacon's blend to see other shots that people picked uh, in addition to the ones that we guys gave you. What I loved about it, too, is that everybody sort of used uh, images or gifts to uh, emphasize their Deacon's blend pick. For next week, we are going to take a cue from our review this week and play hashtag movie poster blend so oh, let us know your pick that's fun on social media or via email you can real uh, email us does at does anyone ever email uh, yes some people yeah. do email in oh. fact um, Mac Rowden uh, our very own Mac Rowden said it was the the poster pu- pullback tunnel Shawshank scene and said yeah. that's the only uh, correct choice and so also like post on our wrong from that page, perspective wanna- yeah he's wrong, wrong from that perspective because we all had much better choices, but that is a, that's a that's a good pick. I understand that. So, wait, can uh, we movie say blend. what where we're all flying to this tomorrow? Yes, yes. Finally? I don't know. We got some freaking black cat superstitious people on this podcast. We will all be together uh, later this week in Los Angeles for an interview, two interviews that we are going to bring to the show uh, soon. However, next week, we're we're not joking. Next week, we can tell you that we have legendary director Joe Dante, who is going to be uh, joining the Real Blend podcast. This was so cool. Dude, how did we not ask him the question that I texted you? Does he prefer his pasta al dente? I don't know why we didn't ask him that. <laughs> that what did make me are laugh. We do, how do we, are we journalists? Well, I want people to, to weigh in after this because we had a lot of fun talking to him. We literally just got him on the show to talk about Gremlins, which is celebrating his 35th anniversary uh, this year. And when we hung up with him, we realized how much fun that was. Like, it was really fun to do a retro interview about a film that was super important to us. And if you guys enjoyed it, if you think it's really cool, like most of these interviews that we're bringing to the show are based on contemporary films. If you guys like it, let us know. And we'll go out of our way to try to book some more anniversary types uh, interviews or, you know, retro interviews to go back over uh, films that are really special to like, us. Like, it'd be I cool think to get, like, Chris Columbus on to talk about, like, Home Alone or something like that. Oh, that would be great. Like, 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 well, like we should start, like, movies, trying to figure you know out, I mean? like, what movies are hitting anniversaries. Yeah, like Fight yeah. Club. Like this year, but you know, it's huge. Um, I, I, the, Fight yeah, Club, for 1999. I will reach or, out to David or 94. Uh, yes, very true. Okay, so anyway, let us know what you guys think about that. Go via social media and weigh in to us at Jake's Takes, at Kevin McCarthy TV, and at Sean underscore O'Connell. Of course, go over and drop us a review on iTunes. Participate in the weekly poll, because Gabe says I'm going to have a weekly poll up now. Uh, and... Um, Tune in next week where we will have that Joe Dante interview talking about Gremlins and probably some more teases with our big uh, two special guests that we will have in future episodes. And by then, those episodes should be banked, so we'll feel a lot better about talking with them. Kevin Until still doesn't then, talk about the, the Tarantino interview. He's pretty sure the Tarantino interview is never going to happen. didn't happen. Never going to happen. Don't jinx yeah. it, guys. So until then, we will talk to you guys next week and...
Dunn? Deacons! Kirk? Deacons! Dunn Kirk. Why'd my voice go so high like that? This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.